I've got to read you something that you'll appreciate. <clears throat> a man on vacation was strolling along outside his hotel in Acapulco, enjoying the sunny Mexican weather. Suddenly, he was attracted by the screams of a woman kneeling in front of a child. The man knew enough Spanish to determine that the child had swallowed a coin. Seizing the child by the heels, the man held him up, gave him a few shakes, and an American quarter dropped to the sidewalk. Oh, thank you, sir, cried the woman. You seem to know just how to get it out of him. Are you a doctor? No, ma'am, replied the man. I'm with the United States Internal Revenue Service. <clears throat> of course, if you are aware, uh, on uh, hmm, I'm looking for here. on uh, Monday, your taxes were due, right? Uh, we always talk about April 15th. This particular year, oddly enough, it was April 18th because the 15th was a federal holiday. Uh, taxes, of course, are the one thing we all hate to pay. And uh, right now, the uh, people running for Congress are trying to figure out how they can raise more revenue without us realizing it. And uh, it's all part of the game, right? But we live in a nation, and uh, it takes a lot of money to run a government. Think about all the, the nice streets we, we, uh, we drive on or the nice sidewalks that are out there. You know, all that stuff doesn't just appear. Someone's got to pay for it. And that person is us. We pay for it. In the book of Daniel, we've been going through the book of Daniel here for several weeks. We're now in chapter 11, so I encourage you to turn to Daniel 11. Uh, but the theme, the overall theme of the book of Daniel has been that we should be placing our trust in God, even in our society, in our somewhat pagan society, because God is in charge of the world. Daniel is making the plug in his day, back in the uh, 6th century BCE, that people should be placing their trust in God really, truly believing in him, even though the world in which they live is very pagan. Daniel chapter 11 is a continuation of what we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 10, and then Daniel chapter 12 follows right along. All of this, 10, 11, and 12, is a continuous uh, section dealing with information about the end. Uh, the history of the Jewish people, history of the world. That's what's in this text. Next week, I'm going to deal more with the eschatological stuff. This, uh, this morning, what I really want to do is I want to talk about the whole issue of governmental obedience, and really just obedience in, in general to authority. I know everybody in this room loves to pay taxes, just like everybody in this room loves to submit to authority. Actually, you know, it's funny. In America... <clears throat> We do have authority structures, but what is one of our overwhelming passions as Americans? Independence. Autonomy. We really are a pretty autonomous group. We have governing authorities, but we hold them accountable. It's one of the beautiful things about American culture and American society and American polity. And uh, so uh, even though we live in a nation where we must pay taxes... We, and we will pay taxes one way or the other, as some of us are well aware, whether it comes out of our paychecks or quarterlies or whatever. <clears throat> Fundamentally, at the core of it, we realize that for things to work best in our society, we all have to submit to our governing authorities. Here in, uh, uh, but uh, in, in, it's interesting, in Daniel chapter 11, 
One of the things we really see clearly, I'm going to back this up in, in the New Covenant text, though, is the fact that all governing authorities are ordained by God. All governing authorities come into existence because God allows it as part of his plan. How many of you, do not take a hand, please do not raise a hand, how many of you would be happy if Donald Trump became president? How many of you would be absolutely disgusted if Donald Trump became president? Pick any one of the candidates. Do you realize that if any one of the candidates, pick one you absolutely can't stand, became president, that that person becoming president of the United States is in line with God's will for our nation? We could go even beyond that. You know, as Jews, let's think about Hitler. To think that it was God's will for Hitler to become the leader of, of Germany. Now, we're not going to take a lot of time to nuance it out, but the point is, is that God's will, what that really means is that God has a plan and that God allows leaders to come into power Not because God is endorsing anybody. God is neither Republican nor Democrat, just so you know. He's probably an independent, just kidding. But that God has a plan. And that leaders are raised up within God's plan only because God's plan is to be accomplished. And so there may be leaders in your In your situation, whether it's, frankly, leaders at any level, think of your boss, think of, uh, you know, if you're a, a young person in college, you know, some leadership situation going on where you're at, all leaders, in essence, are there for a purpose, okay? And that what we're obligated to do is to recognize that God is the one really in charge and that all leadership fundamentally, ultimately, falls within God's plan. So what I want to do is, is discuss this in terms of Daniel 11 and go into a few passages in the New Testament. But if we understand that God is the one who raises up leaders, then we also have to understand that our obligation is to respect and to obey these established authorities, even if we don't like them, even if they're pagan and ungodly people. All right, And there's just one small exception to it, which we'll talk about toward the end. So take a look, Daniel 11. So if you have your scriptures, open them up, and, uh, and there should be one slide, correct? Okay, so I'm going to begin with Daniel 11, verse 1. And it says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now we get into verse 2. So verse chapter, chapter 11, verse 1, we'll come back to. But chapter 2, I want you to go ahead and put that uh, slide up. Here we go. Here we have a slide of, uh, of what's left of the uh, Alexander the Great's empire, okay? And you can see in the purple, the Ptolemies to the south, and then in that yellowish gold are, is the Seleucid Empire to the north, all right? So when I read, think south and north, okay? And that will pretty much sum up a lot of what's being discussed here. In Daniel chapter 11, beginning at verse 2, all the way pretty much until uh, verse 35 or so, 
uh, we're really getting a prophetic message about what ultimately will be history. All right? So it says in chapter 11, verse 2, Now I will declare the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, then a fourth will be far richer than them all. When he becomes powerful through his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the realm of Greece. That, of course, is our desert, probably more than likely Xerxes or Ahasuerus that's referenced there in Daniel chapter 11, verse 4, right? Verse 3. Or verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 2. And then, uh, as we see in verse 3, Then a mighty king will arise, will rule with great authority, and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and distributed to the four winds of heaven. Though it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the authority he exercised, for his kingdom will be uprooted and given to others besides these. Verses 3 and 4 reference Alexander the Great and the breakup of the Greek Empire. I'm not going to do history today, so if, you're, if you have a lot of questions about this, talk to me later. But what I'm pointing out here is that verses, verse 2 has to do with the Greek Empire and the, and the uh, more than likely Ahasuerus as the guy that stirs the Greeks up. Verse uh, 3 has to do with Alexander the Great. Verse 4 has to do with the breakup of the Greek Empire, setting the stage for what now takes place in verse 5. Then the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he, and he will rule a greater kingdom than his. After some years, they will... Can you fix this to whoever's handling sound? This is driving me crazy. Then the king... Okay, let me starting at verse 5. Then the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he, and he will rule a greater kingdom than his. So I want to just point out Ptolemy. Ptolemy is uh, one of Alexander the Great's generals. There were four generals that broke it up. And uh, here, we're going to swap this out. Yes. Okay. Ptolemy was a greater general than Seleucus. But interestingly enough, if you look on the map here, uh, the Seleucus Empire actually becomes greater than the Ptolemaic Empire. All right? And so that's referenced here in the text. All right? So continuing on, after some years they will form an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south will approach the king of the north to make an agreement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will his strength endure. Instead, she will be given up together with her escort, her father and the one who supported her in those times. But another shoot from her roots will arise in his place. He will come against the army of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and prevail. He will also carry off their gods into captivity to Egypt, along with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For a few years, he will stay away from the king of the north. Now... I'm reading this fast because I'm not going to explain it, but the summation is between the south and the north, 100 years of fighting take place. Just Google it, okay? And what's in the middle? Israel. So for 100 years, Israel becomes very low rent, all right? If you need a cheap place to live and you don't mind battle, move to Israel because they've got beach property and it's cheap. Because no one wants to live there, all right? War going on between the north and the south. I'm going to just keep reading because the scripture is still the scripture. Verse 9, then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but he will retreat to his own land. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will advance and overflow and sweep sweep through like a flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, enraged, will march out and fight against the king of the north, who will also muster a massive army. But the army will be defeated. 
But when the army is carried off, the heart of the king of the south will become arrogant and will slaughter thousands and thousands, yet he will not prevail. The king of the north will raise up another army, one greater than the first. After an interval of some years, he will advance with a great army and with abundant supplies. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The lawless sons among your own people will raise themselves up in order to confirm the vision, but they will stumble. Then the king of the north will come and build a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not prevail. Not even their select troops will have strength to prevail. But the invader will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to stand against him. He will take his stand in the beautiful land and its devastation in his hand. His intention will be to come with the strength of his entire kingdom, but he will reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to destroy the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and pay him back for his insolence. He will then turn his face toward the strongholds of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and not to be found again. In his place will arise one who will dispatch a tax collector to extract tribute for royal glory, but within a few days he will be destroyed, though not in anger or in battle. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment. Now, if you're one to think the scriptures all should be about love and peace and interesting things, you know, you must understand that the biblical text is very complicated. The book of Daniel is written prophetically. The text we're reading, re- being, we're reading was given to Daniel in a vision by an angel in 536 BCE. The, the, the uh, information being conveyed historically took place between 301 BCE and 198 BCE. So between about 300, 350 years after it was written down. Some people wonder why the book of Daniel, they question the book of Daniel because of the historical nature of it. One of the reasons I believe it was preserved as holy writ is people read it and they said, oh, good grief, I can't believe Daniel knew all about this years before it took place. Some people like to say, well, the book of Daniel really was written after the fact. You know, people are smart, aren't they? People are pretty smart. Why would you, why would you put into your copy of the scriptures a document that everyone knows was written after the fact, yet purports to be before the fact? The reason it's in our holy scriptures is because the people knew, just like with the book of Jeremiah, they knew that this was holy documentation. God revealed to the Jewish people what would occur in advance. And in this particular case, what he's revealing to the Jewish people is you're going to have a period of time of about 100 years or so where life is going to be really miserable in the land of Israel. Remember if we went back to chapter 10? Daniel's having a bad night. He's fasting. He's he's miserable. Why? Because he knows all of this terrible prophecy that will be history. The Jewish people will be oppressed in their own land for quite a number of years. Now, it gets worse. (laughs) Verse 21. Then in his place will arise a despicable person on whom royal honor has not been conferred. He will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom through intrigue. Armies will be utterly swept away before him and he will be and will be broken as well as the leader of the covenant. 
After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small force. Without warning, he will invade the richest province and accomplish what his fathers or predecessors were unable to do. He will lavish on them plunder, loot, and spoils. He will plot the overthrow of strongholds, though only for a while. He will summon his strength and courage against the king of the south with a great army. The king of the south will wage war with a very large and mighty army, but he will not succeed because of plots devised against him. Those who eat his delicacies will destroy him and his army will be swept away. Many will be slain in battle. These two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and speak lies to one another. Oh, wow, it sounds like today. But to no avail, for the end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. Only this time the outcome will not come as before. The ships of Kittim will come against him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his rage against the Holy Covenant. When he returns, he will favor those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His forces will rise up and profane the fortified temple. They will stop the daily offering and set up the abomination of desolation. With smooth words, he will seduce those who act wickedly against the covenant. But the people who know their God will stand strong and prevail. Those who are wise among the people will instruct many, though for many days they will fall by the sword or be burned, captured, or pillaged. When they stumble, they will receive a little help, but many will join them deceitfully. Even some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. I'm going to stop there. This is Hanukkah. All right? We're Passover. All right, so I don't want to go into too much detail. But what we just read in Daniel chapter 11, that's Hanukkah. It's, it's Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? And, uh, of course, we all know the history. You've been to, you know, heard a Hanukkah spiel. You know the terrible things that were done against us. God here is revealing to Daniel the fact that he is going to raise up leaders, who will end up oppressing the Jewish people. But unfortunately, as part of this, there's going to be Jewish people who are going to reject God and his instructions, who will also oppress Jewish people. We know that from the story of Hanukkah. If you've really done any study, you'll know that the majority of the Jews living at that time when the Maccabees were running around trying to to restore the faith and to restore the land, they were fighting a lot of Jews who refused to follow God, refused to submit to God's instruction. Tremendous oppression, tremendous persecution, and yet God, as it says in the text, is raising up these leaders. One of the questions I intend to ask him one of these days is, is, why do you do stuff like this? You know, there should be a Q&A session when we get to the kingdom of God. And we can, we can hear why God decided to do what he did. But I want to make the point very strongly this morning that God is the one who ordains leadership. He raises up governments. It's part of his plan. He doesn't or endorse anyone. Okay, except for Melech Mashiach, King Messiah Yeshua. And David, he liked to and stuff. But you get the point, all right? God is the one who raises up leaders, part of his plan. 
Because fundamentally, it all leads to the end. Now, again, if we look back at 11, chapter 11, verse 1, I want to emphasize this one more time. It says in chapter 11, verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now, Darius the Mede, who is Darius the Mede? Darius the Mede is the same guy, if we go back in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, so Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And he's the same guy that gets duped into the uh, agreement where nobody's to worship any god but the king. And Daniel ends up in the lion's den. Same guy. So Daniel, here, in the first year of Darius the Mede, Daniel is either ready to go into the lion's den or he's just gotten out of the lion's den. But the point is, it's the same Darius the Mede reference. God raises up leaders for his own purposes. The rulers of the world, though, rule only because God says that they can. The rulers of the world rule only because God says that they can. He raises leaders up and he takes them out based on his plan. We're not talking here fatalism. It's none of that. Don't think like that. Instead, to understand that the God of the universe is bringing this crazy world, which in many ways is very much uh, in anarchy and thorough rebellion against him. God is still moving in it in the direction of where he wants it to go. We're going to take a look at some New Testament texts. We're going to just kind of look at this rapidly. So turn with me in your scriptures. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 933. We're going to talk about taxes again. I like talking about taxes. I hate taxes. I'm, op- I'm open to a VAT tax type of a thing, possibly. But then I know some of you guys will argue with me about that. Consumption taxes con- versus income taxes. Well, let's talk about Caesar's taxes. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Take a look at verse 15 on page 933. It says, Then the Parushim, the Pharisees, went and plotted how they might trap him, Yeshua, with a word. And they sent to him, Yeshua, some of their disciples, along with the Herodians. Just a note here, the Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other. All right? So that the fact that they're together means they're not up to good. Teacher, we know that you are honest and teach the way of God and truth and what others, others think doesn't concern you, but for you do not look at men's appearance. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it permitted to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Yeshua, knowing their wickedness, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image is is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In hearing this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. All right, what do we understand here? Yeshua, in essence, is saying, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Don't just pay your taxes to the political leadership, the nation in which you're a part of, but you make sure you give back to God what belongs to him too. That means you need to be tithing, all right? But that goes beyond that. It means you need to literally understand that everything you have belongs to God, your whole being. But just at the, at the front end, remember, Caesar's a pagan, crazy person, okay? 
I mean, not so bad under Yeshua's time, but uh, let's go on here. Let's take a look in the book of Romans. Because, you know, to be honest with you, the Caesar reigning at the time of Yeshua, he wasn't that bad. Take a look at Romans 13. Romans 13. It gets a little worse here. If you have a, a, a negative perspective in terms of uh, submitting to the authorities of the government in which you live, take a crack at what, Yeshua, what uh, Shaul, Paul has to say about, uh, about submitting to Nero and some of those crazy people during his time. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who, that are, exist are put in place by God. So whoever opposes the authority has resisted God's direction. And those who have resisted will bring judgment on themselves. For leaders cause no fear for good behavior, but for bad. Now if you do not want to fear the authority, do what is good and you will get his approval. How many of you hate take, uh, paying parking tickets and speeding tickets? I hate them. How do you avoid them? Park appropriately and don't speed. You can still do at least a nickel over. But if you're doing 15 over, expect a ticket. <laughs> Submit to the governing authorities. Earlier today, I was a little bit agitated. And it's only because, I'm just saying this publicly because we've got to pray. As Evan Squire was here, and his father was very upset, so he sent the sheriff to come and bring him home. You know, My, what, what to be done? Well, a governing authority. I can speak as a rabbi, and I can say, you know, is everything okay, you know? answer, listen, or whatever. But fundamentally, when a cop shows up and he's got a job to do, I have to allow him to do it. I have to respect his authority. And you know, and it all worked out. Evan said what he said, and he had to go. We need to pray that Evan's father, who's not a believer in Yeshua, would allow Evan to come. And we need to pray for Evan to be strong to say he wants to come. But it's very difficult. That's why you should pray for him, because it's not an easy thing for a 14, 15-year-old guy to stand up and say what he wants to really do in the face of obvious opposition. Authority needs to be respected, though. A parent's authority needs to be respected. For those of you who are not so honoring and respectful of your parents, respect and honor your parents. All right? But if a cop, you know, if a cop says you're speeding, just take the ticket. You can say, please, officer, I'm a poor student. Or please, officer, I, I, I was dumb. Whatever. But if he hands you a ticket... You, you thank him for it, and you, you learn from it. I got a ticket driving through a, a, a school zone not too long ago, and I'm like, where the heck did this school zone thing come from? Cost me a lot of money, you know? And I learned a lot, and I was humbled tremendously, all right? We have to respect the governing authorities. Thank God our governing authorities are not Roman Caesars of the middle first century. Those people were crazy, crazy, all right? Nero made his horse, wanted to make his horse a senator. I mean, these people were nuts. Paul says, respect the governing authority. All right? We don't get to choose them. We have to submit to them. And then, of course, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, along the same lines, Peter is saying the exact same thing. Obey your governing authorities. Now, you may say, but what if the governing authority tells me not to worship God? Well, now we have answers for that, too. Take a look at Daniel 3. We're going to flip all the way back to the book of Daniel, chapter 3, and we're going to remind ourselves of the oven experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, chapter 3, 
verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. This is found page 802. 802. So Nebuchadnezzar says, Hey, fall down, worship me, or you get thrown into the barbecue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, No, we can't do it. Daniel was obviously not around at the time. But this is how they do it, though. This is how they do it. Furious with rage, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be summoned. When these men were brought before the king, Nebuchadnezzar responded to them saying, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, thither, lyre, all these different things, uh, you must fall down and worship the image that I have made. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Then what God will be able to deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to answer you concerning this matter. If it is so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Yet even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image, that you set up. That's, you know, that's pretty, uh, that's a good example. Nobody in our country will say to you, if you do not stop worshiping your God, you will go to jail. Doesn't happen here. But there are places in this world where people suffer. They suffer and die because they choose to worship God and obey God rather than the governing authorities. Nations of the world, North Korea being one, the entire Islamic world for the most part, you know, where we're following God and worshiping him openly uh, brings persecution and even death. We are very fortunate in our country not to have those issues. The issues we have is secularism, where we choose to follow ourselves rather than God. That's the problem we have, all right? But uh, they handled it well, and uh, God honored them. In fact, uh, I think that God himself showed up to encourage them while they were in the fiery furnace. Acts chapter 5 gives another example of this in the New Covenant text. Here, these are the apostles, the followers of Messiah Yeshua, who are told in verse 27. So if you take a look at verse uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 27, here you have uh, the leaders of the, uh, the temple. So you have the religious leadership telling all these telling these. These, uh, these Jewish followers of Messiah Yeshua, that they're not to, to, to tell anybody about Yeshua. And this is what their response is in verse 27. This is page 1041 in the Tanakh. It says, When they had brought them, these believers, they placed them in the, before the Sanhedrin, the Kohen Gadol questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring it on us the blood of this, bring on us the blood of this man. Peter and the emissaries replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whom you seized and had crucified. This one God exalted at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and removal of sins. And we are witnesses of these events, even as, to, as is the Ruach HaKodesh whom God has given to those who obey him. They were very clear. The religious leadership is saying, do not talk about Yeshua. They said, we must talk about Yeshua. Do not allow yourself to be silenced. 
Do not allow religious authorities to silence you in regards to what it is we need to say about, about who Yeshua is. We need to speak up about our faith. Remember one time I was on Devon Avenue, almost got arrested by Officer Einstein by handing out literature about Yeshua. Thank God his associates talked him out of it because it would have been a civil rights case. But there are people that will oppose our faith and they will try to limit what we say. We need to be bold and proclaim the truth of who Yeshua is. But I say the boldest testimony is your life. Live like you really believe it. Live it at school like you really believe it. Live it on your, in your job situation like you really believe it. In your home, especially if your family members are not believers in Yeshua. Live like you really believe it. Because if you live like you don't really believe it, maybe you don't really believe it at all. Maybe you're sitting in this room today, you're not even a believer in Yeshua. Maybe you are religious, but you've never truly accepted that Yeshua the Messiah died for your sins. You've never really humbled yourself to understand the power of the message of the good news. Because if you really believe it, it should transform your life. It should change you. And it should desire to come out of you. No one ever had to tell me I had to share my faith. When I became a believer in Yeshua, I had to tell people. Changed my life. I gave up things I used to do. How about you? These guys, they were transformed. They had to speak forth the truth. And even when their religious authority, their religious authority said you can't, they still did. We must have a faith where even though God puts people into positions of authority who might oppose our faith, we are willing to stand up to those authorities to proclaim the message that we believe. Quite a paradox that God sets all this in order for the fulfillment of his plan. And yet at times, we as followers of Messiah Yeshua will be opposed by those authorities. We are to honor God rather than man. God expects us as believers to obey the law and to respect our governmental leaders. Let us all pay our taxes. Let us all try really hard not to speed or to do things that we know would not make our governing authorities happy. If you're going to build an expansion onto your house, submit to the local building codes. And, and, and it's in your favor anyway, okay? But I got a question for you. How honest are you when you do pay your taxes? Are you honest? Do you actually submit to the rules? Or do you, do you, you, you fudge a little bit, hold back in some way? One of the most important things we can do that shows that we submit to the authority of our country is to vote. Do you vote? Do you vote? And not just in the national election. How about your local elections? You know, voting is a privilege, but it's also a responsibility of citizenship. Do you vote? How do you speak about the government? Listen, the government drives us all crazy. But, our, but how do we speak about it? Are we respectful of it? You know, when the officer came and they did what they did, I was very respectful. We need to be respectful of authority. We can call the cops or whatever, but the point is, but the, 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 these authorities that we deal with need to be honored by us. They put their lives on the line. We need to appreciate that, not just get mad at them when they pull us over because we're doing 60 in the 35, okay? Not that anybody's doing that. Do you pray 
for your governmental leaders? Do you pray for them? I know I do not pray for them like I should. We need to be praying for them. One, that God would bring them into full understanding of who He is. Two, that they would make good decisions, that they would be wise in their choices. They're making decisions on our behalf. We need to pray for them. I'll ask you this. It's not directly related, but do you pray for the spiritual leaders of this synagogue? How do you handle authority, generally speaking? Are you an autonomy kind of a person? You're just kind of on your own? You're into anarchy with you in charge? Pray for your leaders, including your spiritual leaders. I know I need prayer. You pray for me? Finally, it is inconsistent to say that you obey God if you don't obey God's established authorities. It's inconsistent to say you obey God if you don't obey God's established authorities. So, this whole text isn't, or the whole message isn't about taxes per se, but it's about authority. And the Lord our God has established authority. Let's respect the authority He's established, remembering that He is the ultimate authority that we should be following. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your scriptures, the challenge of it, God. Certainly, God, the world in which we live is a pagan world. It's not all that it should be. But we trust, God, you. And we know that you have a plan. Ultimately, all the narishkeit that's going on in this world leads to the coming of the Messiah, Yeshua, and his kingdom. And God, we pray for that. We pray for the soon coming of Messiah's kingdom. We pray for righteousness to reign and for wickedness to be put down. We pray, God, that we would be submitted to your authorities that you've established in our nation. We pray for our nation, God. We pray for our leaders, that they would make good choices consistent with your scripture. We pray for them, God, that you would bless them, that you would bring into their lives people that would lead them the way you would want them to go. But we pray your blessing on them. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Messiah Yeshua, God, who are suffering terribly for faith in Yeshua. I thank God especially of those in in Pakistan and and Saudi Arabia and in uh, ISIL-controlled areas, God, and in North Korea. I pray for these believers, God, that you would give them strength, that you would give them hope, that whatever they're suffering right now, that you would alleviate their suffering with the knowledge of, of your truth and that your spirit would encourage them. Allow them to be the testimony, God, that you want them to be even in the midst of these very difficult circumstances. Again, we thank you for the freedom we have in this nation, the freedom to be able to speed even when we shouldn't. We thank you, God, for that freedom. Help us not to take it for granted, but help us, God, to live our lives as radical followers of Messiah Yeshua in the midst of a very free land. We pray all this in Yeshua's name.